from Romans 8, uh, 1 to 17. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have set their minds on, on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have set their minds set on things that the spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. For the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. Those controlled by the sinful flesh cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit who, lived in, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are his heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. All right. Um, this is a really important chapter, but I think it would be tough to understand if we didn't have some background on how the Bible thinks of sin and death. Because the way that the Bible describes death is a little bit different from what we might be used to. If you remember back to the very beginning, when sin entered the world and people were exiled from God's presence, that let chaos and all the forces that exist in God's creation enter back into the world. And when you sin, you are literally unmaking the world. Uh, Yeah, for for that reason, it makes sense that God would say, if you sin by eating that fruit, you will surely die, or that the wages of sin are death, because death is where your body no longer functions. The order that made it work no longer exists, and instead your flesh decays. Your body is unmade. For the Bible, the sin, sin is what unmakes the world, and death is the greatest expression of that. When sin happens, you are participating in the force that destroys the world and destroys even your own body. Sin gives you a mini-death, where you experience some part of the weight of what undoes your body. Just like in death, when you sin, you attach yourself and become one with the chaos that destroys the world. And because of that, there's a sense where you can experience a little bit of death even before you die. Not only that, but the Bible describes hell as basically never-ending, ever-deepening death. You are left alone without God, 
and there's nothing that can happen except sliding deeper and deeper into the chaos because of sin. On the other hand, what it means to be truly alive is to fulfill the role of a genuine human. It means to give yourself up in love to others and to worship the creator. It's becoming more truly a part of God's beautiful and noble intention for the world. When you do something that aligns with God's will, you get a foretaste of the eternal life that God gives his people. Because rather than participating in, in the sin that destroys the world, instead you're participating in God's work towards a new heavens and a new earth. You are fulfilling the natural role of humans, and in that sense, you are more genuinely alive. The problem is that humans by themselves don't tend towards life, but toward death. And it really isn't any defect in our nature. It's simply the fact that everything that God made was meant to exist in his presence. Everything outside his presence only tends towards chaos and death. And since the Garden of Eden, we have been partially exiled from God's presence. And we don't enjoy the fullness of, of his beauty and glory. And so of our own accord, we drift away from God's presence and his good intention and life and towards death. That is what Paul means by the law of sin and death. It's the law that makes us only want to serve ourselves, to be miserable while doing whatever comes easiest to us, instead of working to give ourselves up for something or someone better. Giving yourself up in love is what it means to be a genuine human. We saw that a couple weeks back, when Jesus gave himself up in love for the world on the cross, and Pilate said, this is the man, as in, this is the genuine human, and that's what it looks like. But without God's presence, we really don't tend to do that. As humans, we are enslaved to this law of sin and death because we are made to be with God and we aren't. And so if we don't serve God, we will naturally serve chaos and our own destruction. Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And it sounds harsh. It basically says that unless you have God's presence through faith in Christ, you will be completely incapable of pleasing God. But if you keep in mind the way that the Bible sees humans as completely dependent on God in order to function properly, it makes total sense. We can't help but slowly destroy ourselves apart from the God who created us and gave us life. Left to their own devices, humans serve death and follow the law of sin and death. In the Old Testament, though, God gave the Israelites a law called the Torah that was meant to set Israel free from this law of sin and death. It taught them how to live wisely in the world that God created so that God could remain present with them and the world would be blessed. Just like in the New Testament, the Torah recognized that if people live according to the principles of this world, they will destroy themselves. So the Torah basically laid out how to live in such a way that you don't destroy yourself, as humans are prone to do. To summarize the Torah, Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering, and you will take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely die. 
You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. In other words, the Torah established God's good creative order, which naturally tends toward life, over and against the natural law of sin and death, which will always lead to our destruction, but which we will inevitably follow. So God gave Israel his presence in the temple and his instruction in the Torah so they could live and bless the world. But Israel completely failed to follow the Torah. In fact, for the most part, they completely forgot about it. God remained present with them for a long time, but finally he sent them into exile away from him. We were made for God's presence, and we needed to function properly, but the problem was that our failures to function properly were also driving away God's presence. It's a catch-22. As we saw before, the natural result of sin is exile away from God. But it's only the presence of God that allows us to live like we ought. And without it, we become more exiled. It's a vicious cycle. The more we sin, the more we drive God away. And the more God is driven away, the more we sin. The Torah that God gave to Israel was meant to give instructions on how to live in the presence of God. But as Paul says, in some sense, the Torah actually made things worse. They were equipped by God with practically everything they should have needed to live in a way that they wouldn't destroy themselves. But they enslaved themselves to the law of sin and death anyway. It was one thing to steal from someone when you probably should have been able to figure out that stealing was wrong. It's quite another thing to steal from someone when you have been given explicit instructions from the Torah not to do it. The Torah, in that sense, only made the sin worse. The Torah told them what to do, but it could not do it by itself. But since it told the Israelites what to do, it only made it all the worse when they didn't do it. But even within Deuteronomy, Moses recognized that problem. He says later in Deuteronomy 30 that he knows full well that Israel will choose death and not life. It's quite a downer, honestly. Moses basically says, you really need to follow this law or you'll destroy yourself. But I know full well that you will not follow this law and you will destroy yourself. The only hope for Israel, according to Moses, is that one day God would circumcise their hearts and actually make them capable of following God's Torah and choosing life. It it wouldn't take Israel trying really hard. It would actually take a radical change in the people themselves. It would be like their DNA had completely changed. But Paul says, what the law could not do, namely save people from destroying themselves because of sin, God did in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, the full weight of every evil power that enslaved us conspired to kill the only hope that might liberate us from slavery to the law of sin and death. But their power was predicated on the idea that the moral fabric of the universe is only power, that everyone is selfish and so there's no good or evil but only strength. Since Christ gave himself up in total selfless love, he completely contradicted their claim to power. And these evil powers were totally disarmed, and they destroyed themselves on the cross. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us. As a result, Paul says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, Jesus has purchased a new people of God from slavery to sin, which leads towards death, and so we are free from its power. 
That way, it's not us that's condemned, but instead sin itself is condemned. Sin itself has been nailed to the cross in Jesus' body, so that the sinners like us are set free from its power. There is therefore no, not, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because he has condemned sin in the flesh. We used to feel like we had to satisfy so many things that want nothing more than to use us for their power and then to discard us when we're no longer useful. We had to serve scary powers like Rome and other strong governments that keep us in line through force. We had to serve social expectations which are so difficult to uphold when at any moment your reputation could be destroyed. We had to serve our own disordered desires which seduced us into thinking that they would be fulfilling but ultimately only further destroy us. We even were enslaved to ourselves, since we foolishly thought that we could find fulfillment purely in serving our own interests, when we thought we ought to know that that's a boring and sad way to live. All of the slavery to all of these powers has been broken, and now we are no longer slaves to death. Since God's presence has come through Jesus Christ, and since his glory and true moral reality was revealed on the cross, we won't just inevitably destroy ourselves. What does this mean for us? It means we have no reason to feel like we have to serve other masters who hate us. About a month ago, we talked about the story of Jesus' birth, when the Jews were afraid that the Messiah was born because it might mean war with Rome. They thought that Rome was really scary, so they needed to do something to make sure that Rome was on their side. In other words, they served Rome, who only liked them when they were paying their exorbitant taxes, instead of the God who had been with them from the beginning. That's the kind of stuff you have to do when you're under the law of sin and death. You can't trust anyone. Nobody's powerful enough that they can protect you. And ultimately, you're alienated from everyone. We don't need to do that kind of stuff anymore. We have one master who happens to be the best and most lenient possible master who loved us and died for us. Paul says, brothers, we are debtors, but no longer to the flesh. For if you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We don't owe the law of sin and death anything. If we are tempted to take a shortcut at work to get ahead, that's the law of sin and death talking. That's the law of powers that want to destroy you. You don't have to serve it anymore. Sorry, water. <laughs> Jesus has a better law. It says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have a different master now. You can choose life. If you feel tempted to gratify the sinful desires of the flesh, you are not indebted to it. If you serve that master, it will kill you. But you don't have to serve it. At the right hand of Jesus are eternal and better pleasures. If you feel like you have to do evil out of fear for the consequences of doing right, you don't have to do it. You're not enslaved to Rome and its power. You don't owe evil anything. Jesus is in command of a, an army far stronger than the one you're facing, and your bravery puts you squarely on his side. On the other hand, you owe Jesus everything because he gave himself up to you to save you from slavery. He bought you, and now you're his. But then you have to ask, if the Torah didn't work in setting God's people free from slavery to the law of sin and death, What's different about Christ? Moses said that God's people would have, would have to have circumcised hearts. They would basically have to have a DNA change if they were going to follow the, spirit of, or the law of the spirit of life. Has that happened? 
In fact, as Paul makes clear, it really has. At the time this was written, Jews thought that one day God would make a new heavens and a new earth, and that he would set everything right. There would be no more sin or suffering, because God would be with them and make it so that everyone would be even more inclined towards, or nobody would be inclined towards sin. Oops. God would have made everything sad come untrue. Part of what they thought would happen, then, was that everyone who was faithful to God would be raised from the dead. What actually happened was a little bit different. Instead of tons of people being raised from the dead at the end of history, one person was raised from the dead in the middle of history. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth actually started about 2,000 years ago in Jesus' body. And God's reign started not way off in the future, but is actually happening right now. When a person believes in Christ, he is infused with the power of God's new heavens and new earth, and with God himself, so that he no longer has to serve the law of sin and death. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, he's part of the new heavens and the new earth that started 2,000 years ago, and will finally be consummated at the end of history. He's been raised from death and towards this new creation, just like Jesus. In fact, that's part of the symbolism of baptism. As you descend into the waters in baptism, it's like you've died. And when you're raised back out of them, just like Jesus was raised from the dead, you have new life and you are a new creation. Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and has adopted us to be his sons and daughters. No longer do we serve a brutal master in sin who wants to use us and then discard us. We serve a loving father who gives himself up in love for us. And a couple of times a year, we celebrate this exact event. When Israel was enslaved to Egypt, God freed them from their slavery to Pharaoh. Right after that, Israel became a new nation, which was founded on God's promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. This in many ways is considered the birth of the nation of Israel. They were called the sons of God and the heirs of God because God had adopted them. At Passover, Jews to this day celebrate the beginning of their their relationship with God, the birth of their people, and their liberation from slavery. They do this with a very specific meal, with very specific rituals that are meant to help everyone who participates to remember that Israel was born and freed from slavery to Egypt. Paul uses very similar language to describe how we were freed by Jesus from slavery to sin. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and have children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Just like Israel was set free from slavery to Egypt and adopted as God's sons, on Good Friday we were set free from slavery to the law of sin and death that destroys us, and we were adopted as sons and daughters of God. Just like Passover created a new nation of Israel with a new relationship to God, on Good Friday God created a new people, Christians, with their own relationship to God. You can see it in the words that Paul uses to describe Christians here. He said, for all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The sons of God was a common way of describing Israel itself. 
He said, if we are God's children, then we are his heirs. Once again, Israel was meant to be the heirs of God. On Good Friday, God redeemed a new Israel, namely us, from slavery to the law of sin and death. And he created the holiday of communion to commemorate it just like Passover. In fact, it's probably no coincidence that Good Friday and the First Communion happened during Passover. At communion, just like Passover, we recognize the sacrifice that God made to redeem us from slavery to sin and death. We praise God that he is someone who frees slaves and makes us able to follow the spirit of life, which actually allows us to live instead of destroying ourselves. We can choose life and not death. Just like this slavery to sin gives us a foretaste of death itself, communion gives us a foretaste of eternal life. We eat together and toast the, the coming eternal kingdom when we will all feast in love and peace in the full presence of our great and glorious God. We do this in defiance of the kingdom of this world, which calls us back to slavery and to the things that destroy us. And we really can do that because we know that God has defeated those powers on the cross, just like he defeated Egypt at Passover. But we also lament those ways that we have worked together with those powers that hate us and want to destroy us. Sin for Christians is a traitorous act against the God who gave himself for us and the foolish embrace of slavery over freedom. We have every reason to be sorry and we ought to repent. But we know that our God is a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he forgives us when we show even the slightest whiff of repentance. We can eat this bread and drink this cup in full confidence that God, God has forgiven our sins and he has welcomed us into his new people. And as we take communion today in gratitude for God's redemption and we recognize, recognize how sweet freedom really is, we can encourage others to also begin to taste this eternal life that we experience here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saving us from slavery to death. Help us to live as citizens of your kingdom and as your children so that we can show the world what it looks like to be free from our destruction. As we take communion today, let us have a sense of your presence, which is the only hope for our, our world. In your name, amen.